You are listening to the Necropolis Podcast, which is brought to you by Jason from Goatcraft and Shelly from HeatMeditations.com and Metal Lesion Magazine. Welcome to Necropolis. We're trying to do more episodes because we were inactive for about four months. Um, so I am Jason, also known as Lone Goat, and uh, we're here for an interesting episode today. It's just a focus episode, which we haven't really done before. We've done roundtables, talking about all these different aspects of metal and uh, epiphenomenal aspects of metal, such as philosophy around metal, horror movies, and all that. But we haven't actually done like a focus episode on influential bands, which I think will be a great topic, you know, just to delve into on one specific band at a time, kind of talk about what was going on when they're, you know, influential to uh, extreme metal in some aspects, as well as looking at, you know, the uniqueness and the endurance of that band, um, especially the ones that are still going around today, releasing pretty good music. So uh, I do want to introduce the guest. We do have Joseph April um, from Invisible Magazines. I don't think he writes for them anymore, but uh, um, he is a great metal writer and very insightful and thoughtful and very, uh, like, if he had a podcast, he would probably do like an eight-parter on Mayhem, you know, just talking about all the different aspects of Mayhem. So he's really digs, you know, deep into the details and it's always highly appreciated. So thank you for joining the program today. Thank you, Jason. You're welcome. We also have the co-host, Shelly, the one and only Shelly from Hate Meditations and Metal Lesion Magazine. Thank you very much, Shelly, for joining this, you know, focus episode. Hello, I've got the uh, Metal Archives page of Mayhem open and I've got my 20th <laughs> anniversary of Metal Archives mug ready to go. So I'm here to fact check stuff as well, if needed. <laughs> well, you yeah, I, and I have a six pack of beer, so... He might need to uh, use his fact-checking skill once, <laughs> you know, someone that's been consumed. So very awesome to have you aboard today. And I, I think today's episode will be really cool. You know, just, you know, just a focus episode and we kind of just express our opinions and views and ideas revolving, you know, the various aspects of Mayhem. So I do, yeah, Mayhem is the, uh, the band we'll be talking about today. Um, so just to kind of start the conversation off, the, the, you know, everyone knows about the controversies of mayhem. You know, Dead killed himself when he, back in like 1991, I believe, if you want to fact check that, Shelly. And uh, there was aspects like, you know, Euronymous collected parts of a skull and made a necklace or sent out fragments to other people that he thought was, you know, worthy in the black metal circle back then. And then back in uh, 1993, I believe, Varg Vikernes, uh from Burzum, he uh, was doing bass for Mayhem on a Demysterious Dom Sathanas as a session member and Euronymous owed him money for the label that he had. I think it was Death Like si- Silence. Um, you can mm-hmm. fact check me if you want. but uh, that's, that's correct, yeah. And uh, so he thought Euronymous owed him money and he wasn't going to pay him. And, and Varg says his self-defense, but everyone kind of really thinks that, you know, he just went in there and just massacred Euronymous. But uh so, you know, aside from the controversies, what I really, you know, get from Mayhem is a lot of, uh, especially Var to Burzum, I think he shares this attribute quite a bit, um, very uh, monomaniacal, very obsessive about metal back then. You know, uh, they created their inner circle. They had this huge, like, microculture that revolved around the Helvate record shop that Euronymous ran and um, he really like fostered the Norwegian scene back then to go like a black metal route. 
Um, so yeah, very uh, monomaniacal, I would say, especially with the church burnings and murders and suicides and, you know, all these guys who are hundred percent into it, completely obsessed. It was their life. And regardless of going to jail, they didn't really care because, you know, they truly and firmly believed that, um, that was reality. Um, the, they wanted to fight back against Christianity by burning down churches. They wanted to reinstate, you know, paganism in Norway. So, just to kind of touch upon that monomaniacal aspect, that really obsessiveness that caused all these epiphenomenal aspects of mayhem. Um, Shelly, do you have any thoughts on that? Like with, you know, being really, really obsessive, does it really like end up resulting in, you know, very uh, groundbreaking works or um, movements, we should say? Um, do you think it really requires that element of just sheer obsession uh i wouldn't say it requires it but it does give black metal the second wave at least a certain mystique it's almost like a a greek tragedy that is irresistible for generations to come where they sort of discover the creation myth of this music that it they lived the lifestyle that is every bit as extreme as the music that they were creating um, but there are examples, plenty of examples of scenes around the world, both in Europe and um, America as well, where they were arguably creating music that was just as extreme and groundbreaking, but without necessarily taking it to the levels that Norwegian scene did. I think if you remove it from the music itself, it was, you know, a bunch of very, very young people getting carried away with their own mystique. And then, as young people do, sometimes taking it way, way too far. Um, but, you know, as metalheads, we have a tendency to romanticise it a little bit. Um, and, you know, that has its flaws, but it's also, it, it's just what we do. It's it's irresistible. It's it's a story that we keep retelling, whether it's through, you know, the various interviews and accounts of people at the time or dramatizations of it you know, the infamous Laws of Chaos book, anything, we just can't seem to resist it. And that kind of means that mayhem, as it was back then, is sort of surrounded by this by this mythos that we turn to. Um, adding on to that, I suppose, um, I mean, when, when I think about it in an objective sense, um, you can't find too many other instances in rock and roll or certainly modern music with that level, I mean, of controversy or sort of drama like i love the comparison to uh greek drama i think that's very comparable uh but you know you think of very key moments in rock history and you often think of musicians dying young with their suicide or drinking themselves to death and you know you could say well the music is why those bands are remembered which is certainly true and i think it's the case with black metal to a certain extent but those dramatic events definitely elevate it to that kind of uh you know higher plane um you know would nirvana be remembered in the same way if it weren't for kirk cobain's suicide would the doors be remembered in the same way if it weren't for you know the wild behavior they had and then jim morrison dying and you know so on and so forth um you know and even elvis you know very storied life and quite a bit of drama but the way things ended for him i think helped cement that and probably the nearest comparison with black metal might be the early days of the british punk scene and sort of like the drama that was around sid Vicious, um 
you know, potential murder suicide with his girlfriend. Uh, you know, just thinking of something in the rock realm that exploded with that much kind of controversy might be the nearest comparison or predecessor at least. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it's I think it's why a lot of people outside of metal are drawn to black metal as well because they're you know serious music fans are at least aware of the story of like black metal in Norway because it is such a such a compelling kind of narrative and yeah it's almost like the logical conclusion of where a lot of metal or rock was going at the time and sort of getting more extreme both musically and in terms of the behavior of the individuals and sort of yeah mayhem were at the at the center of that so yeah it's a story that you know even sort of you know passers by might have might know something about it to some extent because it is so so compelling yeah certainly with the larger than life characters you know that's uh, aspect of music in general like even during the classical period well uh, classical music such as in uh, the romantic period and the beginning of modernism uh like brahms and wagner had you know larger than life personalities and they made headlines just by talking shit about each other and um, even Bruckner said that, you know, his music pretty much came from God himself, you know, just these really huge, you know, characters and personalities. And you can imagine, you know, with that inner circle of black metal, like surrounding Helvet, um, you know, once, you know, they started seeing the headlines that the church burnings and all that were making that that really just thrusted that almost like flamboyant persona, you know, to a fever pitch. Um, so I can, you know, definitely see like, you know, the, the larger in life aspect of, you know, you're in the performing arts essentially, and your, your stuff is newsworthy, whether it's the music itself, the personalities behind it or the controversy surrounding it. So, yeah, um, I could, I would imagine that just fanned the flames of, uh, the, the monomaniacal nature around us, like reinforcing, like they're on their true paths, quote unquote. And, you know, you, you really see the obsessiveness come out in Varg when he, he murdered Euronymous. You know, that's how entrenched he was, you know, that he'll go and murder someone that he thought owed him money. And, you know, like Euronymous was pretty much like the black metal guru in Norway at the time. He's the one who kind of set up all the networking and all that and having a perceived, you know, uh, blemish on that, such as, you know, not paying his dues uh, financially um, and taking that so personally that you would want to go out and kill him. You, you see how inflated that, you know, projected uh, persona is, um, which, you know, granted, you know, Burzum wrote, you know, I know Shelley probably says the best black metal ever. I would say it's up there with the best black metal. I don't, no, like Burzum is really like a, a flavor of the month type of band for me. So if I'm in the mood for it, it sounds great. If I'm not, then I just kind of rather listen to Emperor, Immortal or Dark Throne. Well, not necessarily Dark Throne, but um, Gorgoroth for Norwegian black metal. But it's really interesting how, you know, there was that huge spurt of creativity, you know, the stylistic aspects of that. And we can talk a little bit about, you know, the style of Mayhem, like you listen to uh, D Mysterious Dom Sathanas and the demos before that, um, I hear a very, very strong Celtic Frost, um, Bathory um, influence in there. Um, and I was thinking of another band too that just slipped my mind. But Shelly, what do you think about the music of Mayhem itself? 
So this is the point I wanted to get onto because I think Euronymous is if we if we ignore ignore all of the, the controversy and stuff because we do want to set that aside. If we just look at the the musical movement itself, I think Euronymous was more skilled as um, a sort of manager and visionary and leader, not so much as a musical visionary. So looking at, you don't even have to debate whether Burzum were better or not, but just look at the rest of the sort of Norwegian circle in, you know, Emperor, Immortal, Dark Throne, and, and you mentioned Gorgoroth as well. Um, and I I think there's no question that they all released higher quality work than, than Mayhem ever did. Um, but even going back to like the time in sort of, yes, Mayhem were one of the first in Norway at least, but you listen to the Death Crush EP and it's, it's not sort of remarkable for the time. It's maybe a step beyond, yeah, sort of what Hellhammer or Baffery or uh, Sarcophago were doing, but it's um, it's not remarkable. And then you have quite a big gap where Euronymous, yes, he's doing his Death Like Silence thing. He's pulling together all these bands. He's writing a lot of statements about what true black metal is, um, but there's not really much in the way of material coming out of the Mayhem camp. And I think this was one of Varg's frustrations at the time as well, was was Euronymous was all talk and there, he wasn't writing any material. And like one of the best documents of that time is the, the Live in Leipzig album, um, which again, great album, can't fault it, but I wouldn't sort of place it against any of the, the sort of classic albums from, you know, what I call the big four of Norway at that time. Um, but... There is, there is an argument to say that Euronymous did inspire a lot of these musicians and did kind of lay the foundations for what became, you know, A Blaze in the Northern Sky or Pure Holocaust or whatever. I think the other bands will all, you know, they'll, um, they'll fully attest to the fact that they were inspired and he was foundational in sort of them making music early on. But he was like the spark. And then all of these other bands took that spark and perfected it and turned it into an actual vision. I don't think Euronymous can, can ever claim to be the visionary of Norwegian black metal. He was just the spark that set it off and all of these other individuals that were following him took it and perfected it. I think that's, yeah, that's the encapsulation of my attitude towards the first era of mayhem anyway. I think that's fair to say that um, his inspiration on the scene uh, over supersedes um the musical um benefits that he contributed or contributions rather um to a certain extent i mean definitely i think you know if we want to put a meta narrative to euronymous's life i think it is that he took a uh burgeoning norwegian death metal scene and created a entire black metal wave out of it um, you look at all these bands, uh, whether it's Immortal, Enslaved, or Dark Throne, and they were generally started as death metal bands, sometimes under under other names. And they all do attest through multiple interviews and documentaries that it was Euronymous's influence that made them go, we need to get away from what's going on in the States or in Sweden and look towards, you know, these underground things such you know venom celtic frost bathory sarcophago um you know in the early early you know which i think gets overlooked as well like the influence on black metal is the early german thrash metal scene like the first creator album uh the sodom and destruction eps um being very key part 
Yeah, definitely. And I think, again, there is something to be said for Euronymous, uh, not just in terms of sort of inspiring and kind of leading a lot of these individuals, but yeah, also turning them on to a lot of a lot of music. Like there's no doubt that he was passionate about the metal that he loved and he did have a vision for it. It's debatable whether he was able to articulate that vision for his music, but he certainly knew what he wanted metal out of Norway to sound like. And he certainly, you know, was good at sort of saying like, you know, these early, they weren't known as black metal albums at the time, but this first wave of black metal, as we call it now, he was really good at, turning people onto that and saying, look, the direction that death metal is going in right now is, is too clinical. It's too stale. It's too like um, homogenous. We need to bring metal back to like this earthy primal kind of expression. Um, and yeah, all of, all of the other outfits in Norway took that to heart and they really kind of really ran with that vision. Um, and yeah, I don't, there's no question that we wouldn't have, you know, the first few dark front black metal albums or or even, you know, arguably to some extent, Burzum as well, though Vark would probably deny that. Um, there's no question that we wouldn't have those albums without Euronymous pulling the strings um, behind it all. Um, but yeah, I just, I, he probably wasn't the musical visionary that a lot of the individuals that were following him were, but yeah. So I took a break from... Well, uh, Dean Mysterious, Tom Sathanas, which was, everyone knows, the breakout album from Mayhem. Um, but I, I had gone like a good 10 years without, you know, listening to it. Of course, I got into it when I was a teenager. And I, I read Lords of Chaos back when I was 18. And, you know, I was really interested in just, you know, the, the controversies and all of the mystique, as you would say, around the band. And it is like a magnet. It draws your attention to it like a Greek tragedy, like what you said, home. And, you know, seeing these larger than reality, um, larger than life personalities. Um, but I, I got back to uh, De Mysterious Dom Sathanas, you know, like 10 years without hearing it. And it is a fucking solid album. It is a really great album. Um, it's not breaking, you know, a lot of molds because you hear, you know, you hear a little bit of Celtic Frost. You hear a lot of Bathory and also uh, that band Thorns. Um, which back then, you know, in the nascent days of mayhem, the Thorns guy, I forget his name, which they're coming off an album here soon. I think they're recording one, which is like the first album, like 15 years, something like that. But uh, and um, just to add, there is his name is Snore, Snore, Snor, yeah, Rush. yeah, Snore. Um, but anyway, you listen to it's just like a guitar demo that he's doing, there's no drums. And you listen to it, and you actually hear some riffs from Demon Serious Dom Sathanas on there. And, you know, the, the complete stylistic approach that Mayhem had is in that Thorns demo. So I can see how Euronymous was, you know, visionary with creating, you know, that micro scene in Norway back then that, you know, sprung into a global scene. But um, he was able to take, like, these greatest aspects of a lot of other bands, you know, Celtic Frost, you know, the Thorns demo, and, uh, and of course, Bathory. I would say more Bathory than anything else. But... Uh, I think um, the elephant in the room with that album, sorry to interrupt, but the elephant in the room with that album is that Attila gave one of the weirdest vocal performances ever heard on yeah. any record, let alone a black metal record. Like, it's, it's fantastic, but I think that's also one of the compelling elements of it is it really adds a weird, eerie atmosphere to the album yeah. that was not like anything that any of the other bands were doing. Yeah, I, I think... 
Attila does a uh, opera too on the side. Mm-hmm. Jack of all trades, you know, vocal performances. So very, very cool guy. I, I met him. I know Joseph has met you know some of the guys from Mayhem too. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to uh, Demon Series Thomas, what I wanted to get at was that uh, it took a, a vision to pull all these different influences and mold it into, you know, what is Demisterius Thomas. And I thought, you know, the approach, you know, which sounds drastically different than like early Emperor, sounds drastically different than early Immortal and Gorgoroth. Um, but it was still really fucking solid. When I, when I heard it after such a long break, I'm like, God damn, this is actually, you know, really good. You know, usually with time, you, you start picking things apart a lot more. Um, rather than just going with it when you're a teenager, but, you know, having more circumspection when it comes to music, but um, it's solid. It's not, you know, breaking any substantial molds, but for what it is, it's a great release. Um, and and we, we touched on it and I, and I kind of want to elaborate that. Um, and, and I agree with you, Jason, that I, I do think it's, it's a pretty great release. Um, I, I might be the most, uh, full throat in defending it. Uh, we'll we'll see how this conversation goes. <laughs> um, but I did want to circle back a little bit and talk about Snore because um, when we were just discussing about Euronymous and his influence on the scene, I think the one thing we could say musically is that Snore does get overlooked for his contributions. I mean, if you check the credits on De Mysterious, you see he is attributed as a songwriter on that album. And I think it's fair to say he was a songwriting partner with Euronymous and they both should share the legacy of, you know, the construction of black metal in a certain sense musically. Um, and I think part of it, you know, when we think about saying that, you know, Dark Throne or Enslaved or, uh, uh, you know, some of the other band Emperor having more of this musical impact. The other thing to consider was because of financial reasons, you know, and also internal problems, Mayhem came late to the game. I mean, for first thing, Dave Mysterious probably should have come out in 93, but because of Euronymous' murder, that was delayed. Um, And from what I recall, the recording sessions were off and on just based on what kind of amount of money they could pull together. Um, So... In some of those songs, you know, are in the live recording live in Leipzig, which does precede most of the um, black one, you know, precedes, I believe, uh, Blaze in the Northern Sky, at least the recording of it. Um, and there's four tracks off of Day Mysterious on that live recording. Um, so I think it's fair to say that, you know, the key part being those tremolo picked um, single notes. Um, riffs um being something that snore and Euronymous worked on um and that having a huge impact and then of course them getting essentially to the market with a artifact that encapsulated that so, you know essentially two to three years later than most of the bands in the scene yeah i mean i think uh, yeah fenris definitely credits both of them as pioneering that that guitar style and uh yeah, you're right. The the live in Leipzig. I mean, I think many do say that's like the first proper document of what the Norwegian black metal sound was. But it's also interesting that you get the versions um, with Dead on vocals, and then you can compare them to Attila's performance because they're both, you know, very unique and very talented vocalists in their own way. But um, 
you kind of get to compare and contrast as well. Um, and yeah, there, there is something to be said for the fact that they were a victim of circumstance in a lot of ways. And, you know, the material was already there, even though um, Dark Throne and Mortal and Emperor were already putting out EPs and uh, albums by that point that had kind of beaten mayhem to the game almost. Um, and there's also interesting to think that, I mean, yeah, it's it's a solid album by any measure and I'm not trying to do it down in any way because I think it is it is definitely a document of that period and it, it belongs in the kind of lexicon of, well, black metal in general, not just Norwegian black metal. But there's also a question mark around you know, where would Euronymous have gone musically um, if he had lived? Um, because he had a lot of non-metal influences um, that he wanted to bring to the table. He was very big into sort of ambient and um, like 70s kraut rock and stuff. And it, it begs the question, like, what direction Mayhem would have taken? I know it's all a bit redundant now, but it, it is an interesting little thought experiment. I sometimes think, where would he have taken it and what would that have meant for... Norwegian black metal after after the early nineties. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know the youthfulness would have faded over time, and he probably would have gotten settled on a specific type of style and sound, and just kind of just repeated that over and over, like most bands tend to do. Um, they have like their format and template for writing songs, you know, and later in their careers, and they don't really tend to drift away from that. That's one kind of thing I think about like classical music like a lot of composers get better the older they get and more experience whereas in metal usually it's you know it's this youthful energy that comes out and you know it's very innovative and from there they just kind of become complacent well it de- it depends um I mean obviously there are trends and there's always outliers um I mean, for one thing we could say about Mayhem, and you know, I'm sure we'll get to it, is that compared to a great deal of black metal, mind you, after Uranus's death and in a number of changes, but they were a band that at least attempted to be rather experimental on at least a couple albums. Um, ones that aren't necessarily my favorite, but I will certainly give credit for not sticking to the old format. Yeah, I think it was Ordo Chow, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, yeah. It was very avant-garde. I remember listening to that on a plane, and I was like, "What the fuck am I listening? This is mayhem." And it was very like atmospheric and droney. And I was like, "Okay, they're they're just experimenting around with this." Um, but yeah, there were some cool things in it, but I didn't really thought think it was like anything really special. But after that, like uh, esoteric warfare, I thought was pretty cookie cutter, and uh, you know. They've done the, the Damon release that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, I thought mm-hmm. that was better than Esoteric Warfare. But, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, like Black Metal in general, it's still a notch above most other bands. That's what gets me about Mayhem. You know, granted, they've they've had, a, you know, a few different main guitarists now. They had, you know, Blasphemer after Euronymous. And I think his name is Telok. Um, I forget his name, but the bald guy. Yeah, um, yeah, Telok. Yeah. Yeah, he's like the main guitarist now. So it's an interesting uh, dynamic to have with the different eras of Mayhem and, of course, the different vocalists, too, like Maniac. Um, and it's just a little anecdote. It's not me personally. No, I, I, I talked to Lars at one point, but uh, uh, Lars from a band called Vomit back in the late 80s, early 90s, they had a, 
rehearsal space right next to Mayhem and hung out with Mayhem a lot. And uh, unfortunately, Vomit, um, I, I think they got mixed up with drugs and kind of washed out in music. But just a little factoid there, and I think they are included in that uh, book, Glorious Times, by Alan Moses and Brian Pattison. Um, just a little, any throws a little factoids about like hanging out with Mayhem back then and all that. But so even though like bands that were outside of uh, the, the vision that Euronymous had for black metal, he still hung out with, you know, other bands like Vomit um, with Lars and all that. So, um, so he wasn't like completely like a closed circuit or his own island or anything like that. So he was still open probably because Lars, you know, shopped at his record shop or something. I don't know, but um, there's just a little fact that I didn't want to throw out there that there is like a mayhem vomit connection. If no one knew about that. The, um, well, and one thing, you know, it's happened, touching on the later mayhem albums you know what mayhem constructed itself into after Armis's death which is again sort of that interesting thing you could easily have imagined if you know essentially necrobutcher and hellhammer having differing opinions than they did mayhem could have ended right then and there been like yeah you know Armis is dead varg's in jail i think you know let's do our own projects or whatever but mayhem's dead history easily could have gone down that path um which would be an intriguing one where i think mayhem would have even more than it is now uh turned into a myth as it sort of crystallized and turned into some sort of uh archaeological item yeah i mean it's a bit like uh baffery in a way not not that i was steeped in controversy but baffery was always Corfun was always quite a mysterious figure he was famously kind of bent the truth or outright lied in a lot of interviews about the history of Baffery, his influence, the way things recorded, um, never played live, but, you know, one of the most sort of influential bands of in extreme metal and in mayhem could have been another chapter there where it's just the, the individuals that were part of that were either, um, yeah, dead or didn't want anything to do with black metal anymore. And it just becomes this, I mean, it is, it is still partly that, but I think the interesting thing about the mayhem after Euronymous was it became, I mean, Jason, you mentioned like different eras. It became a place for different musicians within the scene to kind of come and bring their, bring their stamp on it. Like we've, we've mentioned, you know, Blasphemer took over guitar duties, but we haven't actually mentioned um, Maniac as well, who did the vocals on the, the Death Crush EP, but then returned for, Grand Declaration of War um, in 2000. And I know, Jason, you said you don't really care for that album, but again, it's another strange album. It's because, again, the vocals are kind of like um, half sort of black metal and half like he's speaking from a podium and sort of <laughs> pronouncing stuff as kind of some kind of um, dictator or whatever. And it is it borders on the avant-garde in places, and you know, that sort of flirts with industrial um, production and things like that. And again, like... I'm not the biggest fan of the the those sort of early 2000s mayhem albums but I do I do applaud them for being at least weird. I think Chimera is probably the most directly, you know, obviously black metal and Maniac was vocals on that as well. That's like the most down the barrel black metal but yeah. Grand Declaration of War and um what was the other one? This. Yeah. They they're weird albums. Got to got to credit them for that. Wolf Slayer Abyss, I think, has some really good fucking riffs. That's, you know, when Blasphemer had to prove himself. 
but you know he kicked up the notch of you know the the Bathory style and you know he really just focused on that and just like attack 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 with it <laughs> kind of like you know like almost like a synthesis of like Bathory and Slayer almost but uh, I thought you know Wolf Slayer Abyss is a really good album. You know, I, Maniac. Um, you know, I, I know people who know Maniac, and I know at one point in time he was like suicidal and very depressive, and might have ended up like dead if you know he went down further that path. But uh, it's this vocals like <laughs> that really gets to me, and and. Uh, you know, it's like anyone can mimic that. You know, it's nothing really special vocally. <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, I, I think Wolf Slayer Abyss definitely has the riffs. You know, it's phenomenal um, little songs on there. But Grand Declaration of War, I thought, was way too overwrought. Um, I, sorry, go on. Uh, well, you know, just, yeah, leaning off what you guys have said. I, I mean, it's an interesting sort of at this point especially you can kind of view how mayhem traveled afterwards and and it's an interesting one like i and i kind of put a narrative to it you know wolf slayer abyss is is mayhem coming back with different members and a lot of people being skeptical about what that would be so i think wolf slayer abyss was sort of proving they could still be a black metal band so while it's certainly different than day mysterious it's still not different enough to make people think what what is this um and then i think with that having been proven i think especially from what i've gathered i think hellhammer in particular is the one who's often pushed the band to new experimental links in part because as a drummer he's someone who always seems to be interested in pushing himself into doing something he hasn't been capable or, or able to do before uh he really strikes me as someone very interested and in feeling like um the next project he works on is something pushing his limits um and i think the grand declaration of war and i is certainly that and i think at that point blasphemer as well is becoming more and more interested in being able to expand his horizons and then i think you know, that album got a lot of negative feedback for being so different. And from that, you get Chimera's sort of a response to that going, you know what, we we know how to rock out. We know how to be a fucking metal band. So sure, like, we're not going to go again back to Dame Mysterious, but let's pull some of our old metal influences and, and sound more, you know, metal and, and rock in a certain sense. And then again, after that, you get uh, Maniac leaving, Attila back in, and another experimental phase with Order of Ko. Um, and then from there, you know, Blasphemer leaving. I feel like Esoteric Warfare is sort of a, a remainder of that Ordo at Ko um, era. Um, but then Damon uh, afterward, I feel like is a real shift especially because of the realization of who's in the band now and what interests are at play there and again another return kind of to the old so like when i look at mayhem's albums after i think of like the kind of like um somewhat looking in the past but also certainly wanting to embody the soul of black metal wolf slayer abyss chimera and then damon are kind of those albums and then the experimental were really trying to do something different. Grand Declaration War, Ad Ordo Ad Chaos, and Esoteric Warfare. Yeah, I mean, 
I might be the naysayer of the group, but I think Orduard Keo is is definitely like a, a a really strong, like dark experimental album. And I think it has been quite influential on a lot of modern black metal that really trades on that kind of cosmic dissonance sound. They haven't quite managed to capture what Mayhem did on that album. But yeah, I think I think that is an underrated album. But as you said, it did again receive a lukewarm response from people just expecting Mayhem to be you know, uh, straightforward black metal again. And I think that's the problem that the remaining members encountered a lot is just fighting against their own their own reputation. And Jason, you hinted earlier on, like a lot of the original Norwegian crowd, they kind of settled on a style and kind of stuck there. And I think part of that is, you know, that's that's their comfort zone. That's where they they feel like they can just be themselves. But it's also fan expectation in a way as if, if the members of Immortal veered too far from the path that they discovered on At the Heart of Winter or whatever, fans would be disappointed. So they kind of think, well, we'll just give more of what they want rather than trying to push the envelope because otherwise we'll get punished like like Mayhem did by trying to do something different. I don't well, think Mayhem necessarily succeeded every time, but I credit them for at least trying. Like To be fair, I think... Um... I mean, I certainly get Jason's point in terms of bands, you know, falling into a certain pet. But I mean, what I think bands do is it, they do, most of them change. Like most of the Norwegian black metal bands, their sound from 92 to 96 is not what they were doing in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. The vast majority had shifted. I mean, almost every band, you could say. Certainly. You know, Satyricon, I mean, by the time they're doing Rebel Extravaganza is a very different thing, much closer to sort of what, uh, uh, you know, Mayhem was trying to do experimentally. And then even, you know, Emperor by the time of Equilibrium and Prometheus, uh, Enslaved, certainly going into the more psychedelic realms, um, you know, one can go on and on and on. And even Immortal. I mean, you know, you think of Pure Holocaust even, even and Battles in the Burzum, North. The, the most drastic change of all was Burzum. From black wow. metal to ambient prison music, which, which well, according to him is because you know his guitar was taken away in jail. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, arguably, when you look at it in that way, and then when Varg was released and uh, put out Bellus, that was like the most sort of directly in line with uh, Burzum of like the Philosophem era. Like that was undoubtedly. Yeah, that was closest to like his his earlier incarnation. Unlike like Isan going off in a very progressive, weird direction for his solo career. And yeah, you're right. Like, yeah, Immortal. I would say they kind of flatlined after At the Heart of Winter, where not flatlined, but they just stuck with that style of like epic, black and fresh because that's they just found their voice at that point. But but the albums prior to that, yeah, there was a serious kind of arc between. Pure Holocaust, Battles in the North, and um, Blizzard Beasts. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, I totally agree with yeah the other sort of Norwegian crowd. They, yeah, you could never say that they weren't developing, but I, I yeah, there is sort of um, a marked experimental edge to Mayhem that just seemed to piss fans off. And I think it does come from that, you know, the fact that people have this mystique around Mayhem, that they have that expectation that Mayhem should be the true expression of Norwegian black metal. So they kind of get punished more for trying to push the envelope than, than some of their counterparts. Maybe that's me speculating, but. Well, they did start the, uh, the corpse paint stuff, which is still enduring today throughout the world. However, they themselves, other than Attila has really given up. 
on, you know, putting on corpse paint anymore. It's really Attila just doing his own thing. How luck usually wears it at uh, live performances? Um, and just cool. to clarify as well, in case anyone wants to shit on us, uh, Sarcophago were wearing sort of a variant of corpse paint that I think Euronymous took influence from. He certainly brought it to the Norwegian scene and made it like the standard, but just in case anyone wants to fact check, Sarcophago were definitely wearing something well, like in, that prior. And before Euronymous, I mean, wasn't it dead? Technically, you introduced it. Um, yeah. yeah, it was dead, yeah. and Euronymous yeah. ran with it. Yeah. Because dead wanted to look like he was dead. Um, but you know, Shelly mentioned Blizzard Beast, you know, being you know different and all that. It's so different that it's not even black metal, it's a death metal album. It is. Yeah, that's, that's after they toured after Immortal toured with Morbid Angel, Blizzard yeah. Beast came out, and that was when you know Demonus got really influenced by Trey from Morbid Angel. And yeah, he can he essentially it's a it's a death metal album with black metal vocals on top of it. Just wanted to clear the air on that. I know well, <laughs> it i mean i i think it's very much a transitional album and you know there's also the background there with demonaz uh having his hand injury and you know leaving the band to just do essentially lyrics and uh apath coming in to fill in the guitar and that's obviously you know what leads into the more sort of heavy metal man of war viking bathory kind of influence uh, era of immortal which yeah in essence they've stuck with ever since um and you know, it in a way though, that's definitely different than what they were doing in Bells in the North and, and uh, Pure Holocaust. Um, but you can see that transition definitely on Blizzard Beast, where I think some of those songs Abbott was starting to uh, contribute on guitar because of Demon's issues. Um, and certainly on a song like Mounds, uh, Mounds of Might, uh, you it feels like a track that could have been on At the Heart of Winter. Yeah, I was, I was, you took the words out of my mouth there. It's definitely the transitional album with hindsight because it takes elements of battles in the north but blends them with the more melodic stuff. And yeah, there is a definite backbone of, of death metal running through it, but um, atmospherically, it's still very much, very much immortal. But um, sorry, I wanted to bring it back to Mayhem because um, just going back to sort of Hellhammer's influence on the Mayhem incarnation post 2000. Um, particularly talking about Mayhem in, in the live setting, because Hellhammer's sort of, he's credited as one of the most talented drummers within Norwegian black metal, if not within extreme metal itself. And there's certainly a, case, a strong case to be made there in that he is a drummer that has a really distinctive style um, that shines through. And, you know, you can't really question his ability. And the times that I have seen Mayhem live, he's the only member that has really kind of shined. Now, this might be that I just caught them on a bad day. I don't want to judge them off. I think I've seen them two or three times, but um, the rest of the members seemed very much to be sort of going through the motions, whereas Hellhammer, I don't think I could even bloody see him because he had some piece of stage scenery in front of him, but you could hear, you could hear the performance. You could certainly hear it, and that was like, you know, quite special experiences listening to this drummer with this reputation, this technical reputation, as well as sort of creative one. And you could really hear the power coming through from, from the back of the stage. And it kind of almost, it put the other members to shame. Even, even Attila was a bit of a disappointment, even though he's got, he's such a unique vocalist that really pushes the envelope when it comes to metal vocals. He again was a bit of a disappointment, but 
again, I, I'm sort of putting that out there to just sort of discuss mayhem in the live setting. Do they live up to the to the reputation? Like, um, or are they, you know, are they getting a bit tired and sort of running on fumes in terms of the mayhem reputation? I know a lot of people are probably screaming at me right now because they really fucking love seeing mayhem live, but I've never, I've never quite got it. And I'm probably just missing something, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I've seen them quite a few times. Uh, I mean, and most recently back in August, I saw them twice, uh, once in Norway and once in Las Vegas. Uh, and the Vegas show was definitely a very flawed one due to technical issues. Um, but that's uh, interesting that you mentioned that. Uh, I definitely feel like, I mean, if anyone's maybe going through the motions or kind of riding along, I suppose you could say it might be Necrobutcher. On the other hand, uh, you know, I, I don't want to discredit him too much in the sense that and especially with Damon, I think he the base features a little bit more prominently than in previous releases. So it's it's hard to say what's the deal with him musically. I mean, if you're going to um, have a bassist who you know, bass is usually overlooked by all the other band members, just kind of there. And yeah. but he is so fucking meme worthy. Um, <laughs> it was like we're mayhem. We're the fucking best metal band ever. And I was also on my way to kill Euronymous. He's That's a great perfect. spokesperson for the band, certainly. If you're going to have a basis, you might as well have a character like that that keeps you in the headlines. Are you talking about that infamous Sam Dunn interview he did for Metal Ahead Bangers Journey? Of where course Sam he is. One question, and then he just yells at him for 10 minutes. <laughs> Who the fuck are you? That, the, fuck yeah, the fascinating thing with that was if it's less well known, but you know, Sam Dunn later did the... Uh, evolution of metal and uh because vh1 probably didn't want to pay for it he had to crowdfund to do an extreme metal one um which is free on youtube so who knows maybe people have seen that more than the other actual vh1 episodes but um or i don't know what channels it showed in other countries um but he interviews again necro butcher and they have a far more civil a conversation let's say over coffee rather than beer uh in necro yeah Butcher's i've, I've seen that applicable. yeah <laughs> yeah uh and and it's interesting like juxtaposing those two interviews um he's certainly a very interesting guy and there's a real you know in terms of necro butcher i think there's a really fascinating documentary you can see on youtube and i forget the title because it's in spanish but it's like los hombres de norway or something like that um and it's about mayhem's tour through central america and like mexico and central america um and it's very interesting because it's mostly from Necro Butcher's perspective, like before they go on tour, flying over during the tour. Um, it, and it's really interesting. You get in his head, his sort of perspective and view of the band. Um, I mean, the f fact that he's a grandfather, um, which is interesting to think about, like him performing on there. And, you know, this legendary figure in black metal is now a grandfather um and there's scenes of him like picking up his granddaughter from like school um it's very peculiar um i guess it just sort of shows how all of us are growing older um you gotta be this... fuck you <laughs> but um the one th one thing that most carries over in that uh documentary for me is him talking about his disgust 
and real kind of personal anger when he sees uh, merchandise, which is almost always unofficial because I, and certainly he would have a say in what's official merchandise, but of the, um, the black hearts album cover, which is the image of dead post mortem suicide that Euronymous uh, apparently took on a disposable camera, um, which, you know, other things have kind of shown, I think in interviews and certainly that, movie which at some point we can fully get into depicts but it seems pretty true that necrobutcher left sort of in disgust of how your arms dealt with dead's um death um and it's very interesting him talking about how like fans will come up with you know shirts or whatever with that image and all he thinks about is wanting to beat the fucking shit out of them um because that's why he left mayhem yeah well in the fact that it's still a traumatic thing for him that it still sort of triggers this sort of like i can't believe you're disrespecting this good friend of mine by wearing an image of you know his dead body and and how he really still takes that very personally which i it's interesting because it really kind of portrays something as fans that we are not privy to which is the real kind of comradeship it seems like he had with him i mean this i'll I'll come on to that point but this is also one of the interesting things about the relationship between varg and euronymous is is sort of i don't know this this contradiction that yeah these were real people and these were real this was a real murder and uh burzum is still kind of worshipped by a lot of people um and that can bleed into sort of you know hero worship in a way and i i certainly don't look at at varg in in that light much as i love his music i think like yeah that was an incredibly traumatic experience that he that he put everyone through and i think before we get on to the lords of chaos the film because i think we might have to discuss that there's a supplementary documentary um, that I find really interesting uh, called Once Upon a Time in Norway um, that was sort of with the original members of Mayhem, the sort of Death Crush era, and sort of the very early days when they were still kids sort of getting into metal and extreme metal. And this narrative kind of starts to arise of like how Euronymous, he was a bright young kid. He was really like clever and personable. And they almost sort of view Varg as like this this corrupter, but also the fact that he was sort of either caught up in the moment or maybe he was hiding some darker aspects. But yeah, what he did following dead suicide as well um, and the sort of the, the twisted element of that kind of myth really comes to comes to the fore. And it's important to watch to watch that, I think, to supplement some of the more kind of um, what's the word dramatizations of it where you know they might take liberties with with some of the details because yeah and again with like necrobutcher stuff like they they were young they were kids and of course it would be traumatic if your if your friend blew his brains out like like that's going to stay with you forever and and the fact that that image is still plastered over wall hangings and t-shirts and cover art and stuff yeah that's that's pretty brutal and yeah, I could understand him being quite angry at that, especially the fact that it's unofficial as well. Um, but yeah, w- watching these documentaries, and there's there's a there's a version of Once Upon a Time in Norway um, with English subtitles on YouTube, I believe it should still be up there. But that really comes across as just these these young kids at school, can, you know, just jamming in their parents' basement or the garage or whatever. 
and suddenly it becomes just this really really dark tale of you know violence and suicide and murder um and whether it's because of a few bad apples or people getting caught up in the moment you're kind of left to decide but yeah it it really comes to light in that respect it was bigger than life um and obviously you know that aspect you know just what i said bigger than life obviously ends with death um yeah, I can imagine, especially how young they were back then, that that would be very traumatic. It wasn't like Uranus, like 28, and the other guys were a lot younger or something like that. I think he died at 25. Okay, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember I, I did watch that Lords of Chaos Netflix video or whatever it's called um, with all the actors. And I think it was produced by like Corthon's son. Um, and yeah, it, it was like a circus mirror version of of the events that transpired in the Norwegian black metal scene. And I had to take it at face value. It's like, this is just, you know, a dramatization of, you know, what actually transpired in real life. And, you know, they took some liberties with that. And I, I, I it left me feeling very awkward after seeing that. And, you know, kind of shaking my head quite a bit because it, it seemed to do a great injustice to um, what actually happened in real life, which I think is way more fascinating than the events as it was portrayed in the, the movie. Um, and you have to imagine, like, these guys were so into it that they they were burning down churches, like old, ancient fucking churches in Norway because they hated Christianity and all that, which, you know, Granted, I, I share some anti-Christian views, but I, I don't go to the extreme and, you know, wreak havoc on the community that I live in. Although, you know, again, from the Sam Dunn documentaries, as we know, uh, Gaul saying, you know, it, it was done and shall be done. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure in our lifetimes we have not seen the last of black metal related incidents. Yeah, it happened in Georgia, I, I believe, uh, like four years ago. There was a black metal kid who started burning down churches in Georgia because he got so, you know, obsessed over, uh, you know, black metal, especially the roots of black metal. Um, when I talk about black metal, I'm talking about the second Norwegian wave of black metal. But, uh, yeah, it did happen here in the States, and he burned down some black churches and went to jail for that. So, yeah, there are copycats, you know out there uh, it's 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 also it's weird because <laughs> it's a weird thing if if you're an american black metal teenage fan and and you get so obsessed with it that you honestly think about burning down a church that you have to contemplate okay well will the people think i'm doing this for black metal or will they think i'm doing it for a hate crime against black people because <laughs> that's certainly an element you don't have to necessarily contemplate in most of europe um so it's it's a weird I think in that sense it's a weird sort of cultural uh, mutation in terms of second wave black metal coming into some place like America and I'm sure it would be the same in somewhere like Brazil or somewhere else where you have your own uh, cultural legacy of religion and anti-religion I mean yeah this is this is sort of the broader um sociological point around specifically Norwegian or maybe Scandinavian extreme metal as well, because outside of metal, you know, Scandinavia has a reputation for being a very kind of um, egalitarian, very peaceful, but also very, very homogenous, very white kind of part of the world where the 
the kind of racial and religious conflicts um, of other nations aren't, aren't such an issue. They are still an undercurrent in, in those societies, but Norway outside of black metal doesn't have a reputation for that kind of conflict. In, in so it's Finland, interesting that it, sorry, go on. Uh, in Finland, they don't even have pronouns. So when people mm. like, you know, were like address me by the right pronoun, they don't even have pronouns in the Finnish language. And uh, so, yeah, some aspects of, you know, like Western culture, um, and you talk about, you know, progressive things like that, um, it doesn't really translate well um, in the Scandinavia, you know, beyond you know, the sheer quote unquote whiteness of it. But yeah, there's a lot of aspects that like, uh, I, I just recently went to Finland, so it's what my, my brain is fresh with, but uh I know like everyone's like transitioning to like electric and hybrid cars up there, but you look at Southern European countries and they're all, you know, not obligated to do that. I know even in uh, England, um, like you get fines in London if you drive like an older car. So it's really strange um, that, you know, the, the quote unquote white countries are really progressive and uh, they're, but they're not in a way too. They're homogenous, as you said. Yeah. I think, um, that, that's sort of one of the contradictions of Norwegian black metal as well. It was a kind of railing against religious conservatism, but also it's a notoriously conservative kind of philosophy underpinning a lot of what uh, black metal was about um, for, for the individuals involved. Um, and yeah, that, like Varg obviously got frustrated with Euronymous for sort of being ideologically incoherent if i want to put it one way in that he was you know interested in communism as well as as well as sort of satanism and and anti-christianity and so on but varg was always like it's never been about satan it was always more about returning to our roots and you know norwegian nationalism and so on but i think the interesting thing to come back to the lords of the Cha uh, lords of chaos film the interesting element to that rather than not just sort of playing around with the events and kind of glossing over some of the nuances for the sake of sort of translating it to a, a film um, was the sort of cultural barrier as well in terms of they do act like American teenagers. Like at points I felt like I was watching some sort of boner comedy from the eighties that was made in America where they're just, <laughs> you know, running around getting drunk, yelling Satan at passersby and Scandinavians aren't really like that. They're very reserved, even like yeah, very introverted. Yeah. Yeah, they wouldn't really be doing. Yeah, they had a lot of grand statements, and there was obviously a lot of drama going on. But they don't just go around yelling at grannies and stuff in Norway. <laughs> no, it's it's true. I mean, you know, in a certain sense, it's it's hard for me to say because I certainly wasn't walking around Norway in the nineties, uh, and certainly not during the time of then. But I've visited enough that. It, even now that would be kind of a shocking thing to do um and i feel like if like if you were to watch someone walking around in corpse paints in you know the street besides a photo shoot it would probably be a foreigner who's there like some band performing who thinks it's cool doing <laughs> that um not very likely a local i mean the interesting you know, there's also, I mean, there's been so many documentaries, but like a line that comes through and, and always hits me in the head is one of Fenris's bits in the Until the Light Takes Us documentary, talking about like the Norwegian culture, the Norwegian soul. And it's sort of like the gravest sin you can commit in Norway is like being on the subway and looking at someone else directly in the eye. Like, 
uh it's just like that's a taboo like or like you know you don't need to worry about during covid being six feet away from each other because everyone already was six feet away from each other Um, yeah i think that that really that really does sum it up and i think that is one of the key reasons why a lot of metal fans in in the uk and the us we're drawn we're drawn to this norwegian scene but also we don't we never quite fully understand the individuals involved or what what motivated them at the time and i don't think we ever will because there is there is this element of it was very specific to norway and not just this particular group of kids getting into a certain kind of metal and trying to take it to the next step but also just the norwegian kind of mindset and the kind of communities that they were living in that were very kind of sleepy and very you know you know had a reputation for nothing really going on in the same way as like big urban sprawls of of london or la or new york or whatever like but you know this this incredibly violent dramatic art was born from that and we'll never we'll never quite fully grasp what it is but i think that's why we keep why we keep returning to it and are so fascinated by it and you know after that the music itself speaks speaks for itself no definitely um one thing i'd like to return to again again we are (laughs) becoming self-aware that we're kind of getting into the meta narrative of black metal and getting away from you know mayhem uniquely um i do think attila has possibly um one of the most unique vocals in all of extreme metal and jason certainly mentioned it it's the, definitely the operatic influence um and i have a bit of an anecdote um although yeah i think we need to uh wrap up a little bit so i'll try to make it real quick but you know you can never tell when unique influences come into music and and you know until often the artists themselves mention it and one interesting one for me was learning the industrial and electronic industrial influences on attila um and very specifically it was when he was releasing his tapes that he received before the final day mysterious mix was put out um and this is you know before your is murder and everything and you know years and years later he was going to release these you know mixes of some of the songs from day mysterious that he'd personally had uh and in that there were photos of the recording sessions and everything and i noticed that Attila was wearing a skinny puppy shirt which fascinated me because i had already at that point become a skinny puppy fan and it suddenly dawned on me that those vocals in skinny puppy that ogre um created are rather reminiscent of, of what attila has done in multiple projects um and sure enough i after the first time seeing mayhem i I uh, rather funny enough, I I thought it would be interesting. I wore a skinny puppy shirt to the show. And after the show finished, I walked up because Attila was holding court outside with a few people. And before I could even say a word, he pointed my shirt and nodded his head. And and we we had a little (laughs) chat about it. And sure enough, he yes, he's quite the skinny puppy fan. Uh, It seems to be a dream of his to one day perform with Ogre or have some sort of recording with him. That would be like a childhood dream of his. Um, and he related how, uh, again, very interesting. You know, we could do a whole thing on Attila, but, um, you know, again, him. Being yeah, a I, I want to do an episode with him at one point. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, go ahead. 
No, just was going to say he related a very interesting story about, again, in the Tormentor days, in the last throes of the Soviet Union, where, you know, uh, not everything was necessarily permissible um, when they were you know doing what they were doing. Um, he would actually make his own prints of uh, shirts for Western bands because you couldn't import that legally into the country. So like the uh, skinny puppy shirt he was wearing was one he made himself. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I hung out with Attila. Um, um, one night he hung out at my merch table when I played at a festi- festival and he was there for like four hours and he actually took uh, five GoCraft CDs back to Hungary mm-hmm. and a really cool guy. Um, I have nothing but good things to say about him. Um, but uh, we are wrapping up today. Um, so I do have to go take a poop and I've been, you know, holding <laughs> for about 20 minutes now, but uh I, I do want to thank you both for joining. Um, Joseph, you know, great metal writer. Thank you for joining today. Thank you. And uh, Charles Shelley, or sorry, Shelley, um, um, thank you very much for coming on from Metal Legion Magazine and hatemeditations.com. Definitely check out the Hate Meditations articles about his year-end list. I believe it's a top 40, which he just released the first 10 of that. And uh, he's working his way back to number one, for the year. So interesting um, stuff coming out on the hate meditations blog. Um, Shelly, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, 30 to 21 will be published tomorrow. And yeah, in terms of mayhem, I'm sure this will be part one of 10 of Necropolis. Cause I think we could keep talking <laughs> for hours, but yeah. Cheers oh. for having us. Great chat guys. Yes, sir. <laughs> and on that point, if you guys would like us to continue doing these like specific band focuses, just leave a comment on the hate meditations, YouTube channel and uh we'll we'll take note of that like i i have a a theory of you know i think this might be a good thing um as well as like you know i really want to cover morbid angel uh celtic frost fans like that and i think we could have really great chats around that so let us know your thoughts if you enjoyed it on the hate meditations youtube channel and thank you for listening today